2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to continue on that this morning. The hardest no that I've ever heard from the Lord in my life was on becoming the lead pastor of the church that we were at on Long Island. That was the hardest no I've ever heard from the Lord. Made sense to me. I was burning to do it. I loved that church. I still do. I loved the brothers and sisters there. I still do. We still have relationships with good people there. I was on fire to do it. I had a number of leaders and people in my ear who wanted me to do it as much as I wanted to do it, if not more. And if you were to ask some of them to this day, they are probably still holding out hope that maybe someday I'll come back. I believe that I had a very strong handle on where the church was and what the church needed and believed that I was just the man to deliver it. At a certain point, it seemed like it was all but a done deal. We had grown to love Long Island. We did, loved it. We had formed deep and lasting relationships. Uh, We were a 15-minute drive from my front door to the Atlantic Ocean. When I remember Lori was pregnant with Ken, and she was, Ken was born in August, and so it gets hot on Long Island, so we would go to the beach, and Lori would walk out to the water and put her feet in the water, and she'd cool down, and a number of days we sat on those benches talking, praying, dreaming, all that. That would become home. We were about 25 miles east of Manhattan, New York City. Um, <laughs> we were just immersed in culture and entertainment and you name it. It was, for us, heaven on earth. Some of the places that I would get on a plane right now to go back to and eat are some of these pictures right here. <laughs> this one on the left is a dish at my favorite pizzeria called Calda on Long Island. It's chicken franchise. I would walk to Long Island to go eat that. Uh, A Dominican place, roasted chicken and plantains and rice and beans and then pastrami. Like, like, yes. Like, these are... Like, I I miss the food. (laughs) I became a foodie. The best food in the country, in my humble opinion. And in my heart and in my mind... I became, and to some extent always will be, a New Yorker. I did. There are some words and phrases that have become part of my heart and my mind that I will probably never lose, like coffee. Right? Coffee sounds wrong to me. Right? Uh, Water. Right? Water sounds strange. Like, so Mike went to Boston. Mike didn't go to Boston. Mike went to Boston, right? How many times I heard New York is Boston, right? We hate Boston. We hate the Boston Red Sox. We hate the Boston Celtics, right? Uh, Give me a break. What do you want from me? (laughs) Right? So Lori says, your son, since I'm driving with him, he goes, give me a break. (laughs) It's like he, he got it too. As far as we knew, Uh, We were either going to be raptured from Long Island or they were going to put us in the ground there. Coming back to KC was not my plan. It wasn't my will. It wasn't what I wanted. But it was what the Lord willed. It's what he wanted. And it was six months into our return. We were sitting in the sanctuary and Sam was preaching the Word of God, that the Holy Spirit spoke very clearly to me through the preaching of the Word of God, and he made it very, very clear that not only would I never become the pastor of that church, but we were never going back. We would never live there again. It was over. After the service, I went forward, met with Sam, And we went to the altar where we knelt together, and I mean, I wept like a baby. I wept. 
Long Island was not God's will for me or my family. This is not happening. Don't care how much you want it to happen. Don't care how much you think it should happen. It's not what I want. Given the burden that David had to build a house, build a house for God, I would have to imagine that when God told him no to that, it had to have been hard. He was bursting to do it. He had the best intentions behind it, and God just didn't say no. I mean, it was an emphatic no, as we saw. God came through that very night. Nathan, let me correct you and David. This is not happening. The answer is no. But David would learn what we all must learn when God says no, listen, to what we genuinely believe is best for us. And it is this, when God says no to our will, it is because his will for us is significantly better. Uh, God is not saying no just to be mean. He's not saying no just because he just enjoys just wrecking all of your dreams and your plans and all of that. That, that God is much bigger than that. He's far more mature and purpose than that. It's just that what he has for you is significantly better than what you think is best for you. Let me share a statement with you that I have uttered to our pastor a number of times over the years once it became clear to me that not only is this where God has us, but this is actually much better than what I thought I wanted or what I thought was best. I've told Sam this, Sam, my time here in ministry under you and with you has been the sweetest season of ministry I've ever known. I love it. You could put a gun to my head and I wouldn't move back to Long Island now. No way. I love what I get to do. I love who I get to do it for and with. I love the people I get to do it with, even in the hard days. There are some hard days. You ever work with Brandon? Come on. No, <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Maybe I'm joking. I don't know. So after making it clear that he had never commanded Israel... Uh, to build him a house to replace the tabernacle and making it clear that David was not going to build him a house. There is more enlightenment that we begin to see with respect to God's response that's going to help us to begin to make peace with God's will because I don't care who you are. If you're in this room, at some point, there is going to be a collision between what it is that you want and what it is that God actually wants. It's already happened by now. We're not 15 in this room. And it will happen again. Where you are, yeah, I know this is right, and God says, no. And you got to make peace with that, so do I. Verse 8 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. If you notice in verse 8, God's tone is very authoritative. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. So it was overriding. God was overriding what David had said, what David thought, and what Nathan the prophet had said, which essentially the job of a prophet was to basically speak for God. Nathan spoke incorrectly. So God was overriding both of them. This is what I'm saying. Thus saith the Lord. The first time we encounter this phrase, thus saith the Lord, is found in Exodus chapter 4. Look at it beginning in verse 22. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. 
And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. Israel was God's son, not Pharaoh's son. Israel was God's servant, or to be God's servant, not Pharaoh's servant. But the tone of, of this first usage that we see here, and thus saith the Lord, is overriding. He's overriding the will of Pharaoh. He's overriding the agenda of Pharaoh. Thus saith the Lord, this is what I'm saying. Pharaoh was, the most, uh, was a man of power and great authority. God says, but I'm overriding that. And the scenario is similar in chapter 7 here of 2 Samuel. Notice in the first three verses, David is referred to as king in every one of them. He's mentioned as king. But when God responded to Nathan, notice the word choice. Verse 5, go tell my servant David. Verse 8, now therefore shalt thou, shalt thou say unto my servant David. You see that? It's not that God was not acknowledging or recognizing David as king. It was that he was communicating as the Lord of hosts. So I override the king because I put him there. I'm over him. I have the final say. What I want, what I desire, what my will is what it's going to be. David and Nathan and anybody else. Uh, this title, Lord of Hosts, refers to the, the massive number of angels and armies that are under his command. Uh, this is someone who is immensely powerful, omnipotent. That's who's speaking. And when he speaks, not only does E.F. Hutton listen, but so does David, Nathan, and everybody else. He's the Lord of Hosts. And what he says is what it's going to be. So as we look at this and we look to get clarity on making peace with God's will in our lives, here's the first thing that we need to understand. So basic, but this is very big. Especially today in this country. It is never about us. It is never about us. This is the problem. Because we live in a country where people are absolutely fixated, self-absorbed, just completely immersed with themselves. Everything is about them all the time. The Lord of hosts said, look at it in verse 8, listen, I took thee from the sheep coat, verse 9, and I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, verse 11, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies. David did not take himself from the sheep coat or the pasture and make himself ruler over God's people. God did that. Amen. That wasn't David's doing. It wasn't. Uh, as, a, as great of a warrior as he was, he did not cut off all his enemies and make his name great. God did that. God did it. The rest that David was enjoying was because of God, not him. This was all about God start to finish and in between. All about him. God did all of it because ultimately it was about God's glory, not David's. This thing about vainglory is, I think it's much more of an issue than we might imagine. Because listen, if someone is fixated on themselves, if someone is self-absorbed, if someone is all about themselves, there's no way they can't be vainglorious. Because the more focused you are on yourself, the less focused you are on the glory of God. That's how it works. 
Please, the biggest problem we have with God's will is making it about us. This is the biggest problem we have with making peace with God's will. Is making God's will all about me. That's the issue. This was a point of rebuke from the Lord to me regarding Long Island. It was. He rebuked me. That Sunday, as I listened to Sam preach from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 regarding the spiritual body of Christ, God reminded me, as a member of the body of Christ, I am a part. And because I am a part, I have a function that I am to do to the glory of God and to the edification of his church. And listen, the reason that he took me from Long Island and brought me to Kansas City to the Midtown Baptist Temple was so that I could be the part that he had made me to be to the fullest for his glory and the edification of this place. Now that you know that, stop whining, stop moping, stop playing the victim card and get to work. That was the rebuke. <laughs> I have not wronged you. God made it clear to me. I have not wronged you. This is about my glory. And if it's going to maximize the glory of God out of your life to me, then yes, I will uproot your life. I will allow whatever distress is necessary to relocate you from that place that you love so much and bring you here. God says, I will do that for my glory. Because my glory matters more than anything that matters to you. So if you want bagels that bad, have your friends send them to you, and they did. <laughs> it was, it is, and always will be about God's glory in my life and in yours. Consider Exodus chapter 5 and verse 1. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, let my people go, listen, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. God's people could not hold a feast unto him. They could not worship him in Egypt. So God was calling and leading them out because it was just so hard and it was so uncomfortable and it was so cruel and, and they were just being afflicted and attacked, and, and God brought them out so that they could be much more comfortable, so that life could be so much better, so that they could be happy. No. God says, I am redeeming you unto myself. I am liberating you out of that dreadful place for me. For me. Not you. For me. Look at Isaiah 43, verse 7. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. That referred to Israel, contextually, for sure. But when you compare this with Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, this is also reflective of us, is it not? Listen, our very existence is about his glory. Your very existence, the reason that you have air in your lungs right now is for his glory. Everything, as far as God is concerned, is about his glory. Consider 2 Corinthians 5.15, and that he died for all, 
that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. If you are in Christ, then Christ is your life, Colossians 3 and verse 4. And here's what that means, if that's true of you. What that means is, is the life that you have is not yours. It is his, and it is to be lived to the fullest to his glory. It's not about you in any capacity. The salvation that you have in Jesus Christ is so that you would live to glorify him to the max. There isn't anything in your life, as far as he is concerned, that is not about what pleases and glorifies him. I'm going to be challenging the husbands a little bit later, but let me challenge you now. Let me challenge the husbands in the room. Let me tell you, you ought to take Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, and live that and lead your family to live that. Make sure, brothers, that your wife and your children understand life from, from the perspective of Revela Revelation, I can't talk this morning, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. Look at it. Let that be the theme verse of your home, your marriage, your parenting, all of it. Some believers today, they obsess over trying to pinpoint their spiritual gift. What's my spiritual gift? And, and, and they try and identify, what is God's plan for me specifically? Like, they're, they're very interested in it. Like, they, like I, I want to know what it is. You might have noticed that at no point, because we've looked at this a little bit earlier in 2 Samuel about decisions and, and God's will and all of that, and so we're looking at it again a little bit differently here, but if you notice as, we, as we're looking at all this, at no point have I ever referred to it as God's plan. I haven't. Now, I understand what we mean when we say that. In, in terms of making a, a, a distinction, if you would, between the will of God and the plan of God. Here's the problem. Show me in Scripture where you find the phrase, the plan of God or God's plan. It's not there. Now, I, I'm not saying that to be snarky and, and anything like that. I'm just making the point that ultimately what you do find very clearly in Scripture is reference to the will of God. That is what God wants. And nothing else matters. So when it comes to uh, my spiritual gift or, or, or God's plan for my life and all of that, it's, no, what it really comes down to, God, what is it that you want? End of story. Because when people get so preoccupied with making sure they, 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 they pinpoint their spiritual gift and they can identify God's specific plan for them, two things. Number one, what they're really doing is they're saying, okay, God, why don't you present it to me and then I'll let you know if that's going to work for me or not. That's really how this goes down. I, I, I want to see if, if, if that fits me. Because if it doesn't, then I'm going to come back and say, hey, can we negotiate a little bit? Here's the other thing. When people are fixated on, well, what's my gift and, 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 what's, my, and, and what's the plan? Well, many of them are idle until they hear what they want to hear from the Lord. So I'm not going to do anything until, because I don't, I don't know what my gift is. I don't know what the plan is. So, I, hey, whenever you're ready, God, let me know. Hear this. 
The best thing we can do to know and make peace with God's will is to simply ask God this question. What would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? Blank check. Blank sheet of paper. Not here's what I'm interested in doing. Here's what I want to do. God, I will do anything you tell me to do. I will serve you however you want, to serve, you want me to serve you as long as it's on Long Island. <laughs> you got it. You got me. As long as I can hop on a train and take my family into Times Square and have a wonderful Saturday and go to the museums and eat the wonderful food and enjoy great culture, and as long as we can go to the beach and have a great time and have this great New York life, I'm your man. God says, no, actually, here's what I want. I want you to get rid of everything and get your family pack up and get back to Kansas City. That's what I want. Oh, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> it's funny, we got back, and, and uh, we were driving near downtown, and Ken goes, where's the city? <laughs> I was like, oh, that's it, buddy. <laughs> he goes, where's the ocean? <laughs> well, you ever hear of lakes? <laughs> I'll take it to a lake. Acts 9, verse 6, look at it. And he, saw, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, well, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. God, what would you have me to do? You know... If I had a concern, I have a, I have a few concerns about us. Us, Life Fellowship. And again, I'm, I'm brothers, I, I, got, I really got you in mind this morning. Because what happens or what can happen at this age and stage of life is that we think we got it figured out. And some of you, you've gotten to the place where you're like Isaac in the book of Genesis. Where his eyes were growing dim and he thought he was going to die. And yet he lived another 43 years. But the Bible was pretty quiet about those years and I would say my take on that the Kenny commentary, whatever that's worth would be, because there was not really much to write about. You know what Isaac's problem was? It wasn't the fact that he was losing his physical eyesight, it was that he had no spiritual vision. He had an appetite for the carnal things of the world. And I'm afraid that some of you have gotten to the point where you think God has done everything that he's going to do or could do. You've, you've actually written off the fact that it is possible. It is possible for you to be sitting in that room over there at Mission Focus, and it just might be that God says, I want you to sell everything and go to Kenya. I want you to, just maybe, who knows, maybe you're on a trip to Laramie and you're out there and you think, Lord, is that you? Are you? Are you leading me to come be a part of this? And then you come back and you say, hey, Kenny, can we talk? Man, what a conversation. I would welcome that in a heartbeat. Yes, let's talk. But you, you've melded in. 
Everything that God's going to do, he's done, right? You're just going to keep doing time, and man, you'll come to church, and you'll take some notes, and, and you'll, but, but really, you're not really, you're living your best life as best as you know how, but it, it, God is that big to you. When I knelt with Sam that Sunday morning and bathed the altar with tears, you know what it was? It was a prayer of confession and submission. I was confessing that I was wrong. God, who was I? How dare me question you about anything? And it was submission. Here I am. Okay. Long Island is over. I'm not going to pastor that church. We're never going to live there again. Okay. This is where you have us. I don't have time to, to, to tell you, but it was in this very chapter. It was in this very chapter. After that, this verse, 2 Samuel 7.10, this verse means the world to me devotionally because God spoke to me out of it. But this was the verse that God used to speak to me very clearly. And, and I can say this with peace and great clarity. That son, whatever I'm going to do with you, however I'm going to use you, it's going to be through the Midtown Baptist Temple in the Kansas City metropolitan area. You're not moving anywhere else outside of this area. So whenever there are conversations that are being had or there are trips to be had, it's always round trip. It's not, there are no one-way trips. <laughs> uh, now, there, there can be a one-way trip in the Kansas City metropolitan area, but nothing beyond that. God made that clear to me. So praise the Lord. I was submitting to whatever God knew was best. You know what? I was finally in a place of brokenness. Not fighting God, not bucking, not trying to force what I want to do. Can we hear this? We will never make peace with God's will until we are broken before him. That was one of the problems that I had in this whole thing. I had a very presumptuous streak in me where when I want to do something, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to put God's name on it. I'm going to jump, and God's going to catch me. <laughs> God says, we're going to break that, and he did. If you are not broken, you will war with God over what you think is best and what he knows is better. You'll just war. You'll just fight back and forth. And here's the thing. You can't win. You can't win. Verse 10. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies. Now, here we go. Also, the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. Wow. Think what God has in mind is a little bit better. Oh, yeah. And maintaining the focus on who this is about. Notice the language. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. He will make thee a house. This was never about David. This has always been about God and always will be. But in this part of God's response, we see an enlarging, if you would. I mean, this is getting bigger. What God had in mind was significantly larger than what David was thinking. This is what I'm saying. What God is thinking when it comes to what's best for us is so much better and bigger than we could ever fathom. 
Solomon would build God a magnificent house for the ages, but where's that today? Where's that? (laughs) Hear this. What David had in mind was temporal, but what God had in mind was millennial and eternal. Those are massively different. And the response was also dispensational. Hermeneutically speaking, that speaks to how we rightly divide God's Word and interpret Scripture here in this place. And while we're here, what we're, what we're speaking to is we do not take a replacement approach. That is to say, we do not believe that the church has replaced the nation of Israel today. So we are not the New Testament Israel, if you would. There are promises that God made to the Jewish people regarding a literal land, a literal king, and a literal kingdom. Those promises were never made to Gentiles or to the church. So what God promised to David here was essentially a repeat of the Abrahamic covenant that we see in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and Genesis chapter 15, those first 15 verses. You see that very clearly. And verse 10 here of 2 Samuel is an example of what we refer to in terms of prophecy as double fulfillment. And what we mean by that is, is you'll see that when you're talking about the principle of double fulfillment, you're referring to the fact that historically you can see an aspect or a, per- or a portion of this particular truth that was fulfilled, but yet there remains a future fulfillment. And that is certainly the case here in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 10. And so one of the things that you see when you look at the nation of Israel is that by the grace of God, as a nation, they've done something that no other nation has ever done in history And Israel has done it twice. And that is, after losing their statehood, they became a nation again. That is remarkable. It is. God restored them as a nation after the Babylonian captivity. We understand that. They were destroyed in A.D. 70 by Titus of Rome. But then in 1948, something amazing happens. The Balfour Declaration, where Israel now is recognized as a nation again. That's amazing. That's amazing. So historically, they've had times where they've had a place of their own. You can see that. They've also had seasons of peace, not long lived, but they have had them. But the fullness of verse 10 is still future. You go, how can you be so sure of that? Because while Israel is in their land, as a people, they're still scattered, are they not? All over the world they are. Not to mention, they are still being afflicted by the children of wickedness, are they not? We talked about the Arab people being descendants of Ishmael. Are they still not a thorn in the side of Israel as we speak? Yes, they are. Consider this from Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people, to which shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. So the scope of this phrase, that day, and you'll also see it those days, when you see that phrase, the scope of it is usually prophetic. Now there are some good men who have taught me well, and I thank God for them, and those men will tell you, some of them anyway will say, anytime you see that phrase, That is the case. I won't argue with them. They are much smarter than I. I would say this, the circumstantial evidence for that to be true is extremely strong. And it is definitely the case here because it refers to the day of the Lord when the Lord Jesus Christ will rule and reign in his kingdom on earth. That is the day that is in view here. As the roots of Jesse, Christ is the basis, or he is the source for the lineage of David. 
He's the roots of Jesse. Uh, this kingdom will be comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. The Bible makes that clear. And as the ensign for the people, Christ will be as the flag for the nations, the flag representing his millennial kingdom that he is ruling and reigning on the earth. And it says that his rest shall be glorious. What will precede this time on planet Earth will be war and unprecedented bloodshed. The Bible tells us very clearly from Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 9 that two-thirds of the nation of Israel will be slaughtered in the tribulation. Unprecedented bloodshed. And when Christ returns to the earth at the end of the great tribulation and the battle of Armageddon, the Bible says that he will tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, Revelation 19, 15. If you know anything about treading the wine press, what you're talking about is, is you're, you're in this box, if you would, and you're, you're, you're trampling or stomping grapes. And as you do that, grape juice is splattering everywhere. So the picture that is being painted for us here is that at the second coming of Christ, that is what he is going to do to the enemies of Israel to the kingdoms of the Antichrist, he is going to trample them and blood is going to be everywhere. That's sober. So to the Jews and Gentiles who come out of the tribulation, yes, his rest will be glorious. <laughs> it will be glorious. Verse 11 and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnants of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pethros and Cush, I'm sorry, from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Again, historically, you've seen portions of this happen in terms of this regathering. But again, a good cross-reference here would be Hosea chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, where it talks about how both Judah and Israel, those two kingdoms, are going to come together as one, and they're going to embrace their head as one, and that for sure is the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're going to be one nation gathered together under the Messiah whom they pierced at his first coming. But this is all pointing to that day when Christ is ruling and reigning on the throne. How can we be so sure? A very strong clue is, here it is again, in that day. Which is the day of the Lord when he's ruling and reigning. Okay, how can you be sure about that? When have we seen this? When have you seen him ruling and reigning on the throne, literally? That is waiting to be fulfilled. Amen. But is this getting enlarged or what? Is this getting bigger or what? Is this becoming clear to David that, oh, listen, I was just looking to build a house. Whoa. Verse 11 and as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee and how. So God again reminds him of what he's done for Israel. But when God tells him he's going to build him a house, he's talking about a lineage. He's talking about a dynasty. He's talking about a kingdom that was going to outlive David. He was talking about something millennial, something eternal. Now, it doesn't take a scholar to handle the question I'm going to ask you. <laughs> Which is better? Which is bigger? 
David building God a house or God making him one? <laughs> I think I'll take this one every time. The gap between what David was thinking and what God was thinking, brothers and sisters, was deep and wide. As you're going to see, David was absolutely blown away by this. Blown away. And let me tell you, what God has for you, God's will for you, because it is significantly better, will blow you away. Can I tell you, I, I, I mean, what God, God's plan for the Morgan family here in Kansas City, wow. Come on, man. It is good, man. So good. So very good. Here's the last thing. If we're going to make peace with God's will, we have to understand it's never about us. And here's the second thing. It is bigger than us. It is bigger than us. Uh, my time is running short. Let me ask you a question. And again, um, husbands, I, I've got you in mind today because the answer to this question in terms of how it relates to you speaks to how it is relating to your wife and children. Here's the question. Are you living your best life or God's best for your life? That's the question. Are you living your best life? Or God's best for your life? Those are different, aren't they? So this is what I'm saying, right? I, 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 I've got it, Lord. Long Island, right? That's where we got to be. That's what's best for me. That wasn't what was best for me. And because that wasn't best for me, it would not have been what was best for my wife and children. No, what was best for the Morgan family is what we're living right now. It's God's best for us. Praise the Lord. But you, you've got to know. That's what I'm saying. It, hey, brothers, please, I beg you. I beg you. Brothers, <laughs> when it comes to this book, you must bring a listening urgency. A listening urgency. Where every time you approach it, whether it be in your quiet time, or you're sitting in this space, or you're being discipled, or you're in LFBI, or you're in main service, and the Word of God is speaking, it's urgent. It's urgent. God could say something to you, I mean, that can completely reorient your life, turn it upside down, change everything. Not just going through the motions. Man, is he almost done? Yes, I am. I'm almost done. I heard that. <laughs> He's like, yeah, wrap it up, man. <laughs> hey, listen. Brothers, Hebrews eleven twenty four. I promise, I'm wrapping it up here. But brothers, could could you, uh, could, could you lift? Okay, so I I grew up. I would say I grew up poor, right? Not even middle class. We we were poor. So you know what we would do with our televisions? We we take like uh, coat hangers and use them on the TV so we could you know get a better signal. <laughs> what do you call that? Ghetto? That, yeah, man. I mean like. Like coat hangers and aluminum foil. Like we have all these little tricks, man. All right, to, to boost the, the antenna to get a better signal, all right? So hey, listen, brothers, can you can you raise your listening antenna here? By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. 
esteeming the reproach of Christ's greater riches than the treasures of Egypt in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. I've got more text than I do have time at this point, so hear me. Knowing what we know about Laodicea, most saved men today would have thought that their best life was in Egypt and would have chosen to stay. Would you agree with that? Knowing what we know about Laodicea, man, why would I give up all this? (laughs) Moses, I mean, come on, are you serious? I mean, man, this is... Oh, no, but what God had for Moses, was it not bigger and better than Egypt? So here's, here, here's the tragedy. If most men would choose to stay in Egypt and not leave, guess what that means? Guess who's there with them? Their families. Do you understand that God had a double focus when it came to his people in Egypt? God not only wanted to get them out of Egypt, he wanted to get Egypt out of them. Brothers, if you are living your best life instead of God's best for your life, you know what you need? We know I'm praying for you. You need a Damascus Road-like encounter with the living and true God that changes everything. If you would have asked the Apostle Paul, look at Philippians chapter 3. You talk about a life. Are you kidding me? Look at that resume. Look at that pedigree. Look at that privilege. Look at that prestige. And you know what he said? It's dumb. Why? Because... God's will for him was significantly better. Lord, in Jesus' name, help us to make peace with your will. Amen.